Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 289. We just began the last day of Hanukkah, the eighth and last day of Hanukkah of this year, Tov Shin Pei. And we say, Afreilich and Zeis Hanukkah, Hanukkah is connected to Simcha, to joy, to light, to Eir. We illuminate the darkness with the light of Hanukkah. But Zeis Hanukkah has a special name, which we will be discussing in this special Zeis Hanukkah and Hey Tevis edition. But I want to begin because Hey Tevis is coming up this week, on Wednesday night. So I will be doing a special program in the Jewish Children's Museum live. Men and women are welcome. And it will be live streamed at an evening for the books.com. Here's the invitation. You're all welcome to participate will be a very special evening. We will talk about Hey Tevis, the power of the books, the significance of them and their authors, and actually take a glimpse into what it says in the books and the teachings and the Torahs of the nine Rebbes, starting from the Baal Shem Tov till the Rebbe. We'll also be followed by song and music of each of the Rabbeim. It should be a fascinating and unprecedented evening, and I welcome you all. I want to thank Menachem Ben Shimon, the producer for this, very creative. He's coming up with great ideas, creating excellent quality events. And I'm honored to be the one that's presenting, together with Eli Marcus, who will be singing the Nagunim, together with an ensemble of musicians. So I look forward to that Wednesday night. And that is an announcement again. An evening for the books.com is the invitation. This side, and here's the other side of the invitation. Okay. With that announced, let us enter into a subject which is a little more complicated to talk about and actually painful to talk about. And I want to start with that because, fortunately, it's right fresh, as, uh, as unwanted as we'd like to ha- have it, and that is the latest tragic and um, frightful attacks on Jews. How should we react to the recent frightful attacks on Jews? Just, this, just yesterday, Mitzvah Shabbos, attack in Muncie, New York. We had one here in Brooklyn, more than one. And it seems to be an increasing accelerated uh, pace that is taking place here. And it's frightening many people. What should we do about it? So let me begin with addressing that. And interestingly, everything is divine providence. It's happening right in the days of Hanukkah, in the concluding days of Hanukkah. We obviously, firstly, our hearts go out and our prayers go out to anyone that's been hurt or frightened. And they should have complete refur shleima. And we should never, ever have to hear about any such events again, never have to experience any such events again. And yet, we cannot look at it with a blind eye and turn away. We have to be able to look at it and say to ourselves, what does this mean? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to interpret it? And being that it is Hanukkah, Hanukkah obviously has tremendous lessons because Hanukkah, above all, is what? It illuminates darkness. And darkness doesn't just mean physical darkness. It means every form of darkness, whether it's psychological, emotional, hatred, racial, or attacks or anti-Semitism, racism, and any other form of uh, darkness, that, how it manifests in this world. So, of course, there are many different approaches when dealing with darkness. And I'm not trying to get philosophical here, because above all, there's no question we have to do everything possible to vanquish and to eliminate and to deter and, uh, and, and arrest and put away anyone that is harmful and dangerous whether it's with words and definitely with weapons. And that's why by Hanukkah there was a war. It wasn't just a uh, platonic, a, a, a conceptual uh, 
battle. It was an actual war against the many or vanquished were won over by, triumphed over by the few. Rabim biyad ma'atim, chazokim biyad chaloshim, the strong were conquered by the weak, showing the, that quality can prevail over quantity. And bottom line being that when you go with faith and with strength and with a cause, you do what you have to do. But nevertheless, interestingly, though wars were fought and won, the way Hanukkah is commemorated, as we discussed last week, is not through a battle, not through a simulated battle, and not through even honoring the battle. We barely mention it. We mention it, but not, but not the main significant focus of Hanukkah. My Hanukkah, the Gemara says, is all about the flame, the, the, uh, the olive oil that was defiled and then found one crucible of oil, one cruise of oil that was untouched, and that burned, burned for eight days. Why? Why no mention made? Like, by, for example, when we left Egypt, there were battles, and we talk about them. We talk about the ten plagues, and we commemorate them, etc. And here, it's all about light, because at the end of the day, the real way to battle darkness is with light. And a few, on a few levels. First of all, we cannot become victims and become, run into a panic and be controlled by emotions, our emotions, by others who hate us. That's never been the Jewish way. We're prudent and we're practical and you lock your doors and we get law enforcement and we do whatever is possible. And here we have to make a tremendous demand, especially with this increased attacks, without even getting analyzing why it's happening, a demand that this be addressed in the most forceful possible way and if new laws have to be drafted, and if new, new, uh, new strict uh, enforcements have to be implemented, so be it. So there's no question we have to do that. But at the end of the day, even that is not because we're consumed with the darkness, it's because we have to deal with darkness. But at the end of the day, the Jewish people always fought darkness with light, which meant <clears throat> we did not define ourselves and our identity by being victims to those that hated us. We always kept our head up. We always believed in God, even in the most difficult times, believed in our values, maintained them, did not become bitter, did not become victims. We will not allow ourselves to be defined by those that hate us. And that's a vital, vital message on all levels. Because we would not be here today if we did. We've been attacked too many times, and we've been the victims of too many, uh, too many different um, perpetrators of all levels, expulsions, genocides, murders, holocaust, pogroms, that had we succumbed and just turned into a nation and to a people and individually as being nebach cases, meaning people who are always on the weak side and did not build up strong, fortified values and families and legacies that we passed on, we would never have survived. So the first message of Hanukkah is light is stronger than darkness. And we always go with light. At the same time, you have to deal with the darkness in a realistic way, like I just said. Those that have influence, and all of us have some influence, to put absolute pressure, protection, deterrence, and going even deeper, not just on the short-term level, which is the immediate law enforcement that needs to be done, the protection, cameras, whatever it takes to protect, but also what is going on in the education of these people who are growing up and in this rampant way can just feel free to come with a knife, a wielding knife, and, and just stab people. So we get it also into the education of the education system of what are we teaching our children. Now I know that's a longer term battle, so to speak, but nevertheless, we can't ignore that as well. So Hanukkah provides us an answer. Number one is we do not panic. We're not panicking. 
That doesn't mean we aren't prudent. That means we need to do what we need to do to protect ourselves. But to go into hysteria of saying they're after us and we have to find ways to escape and run away from, the, from all these challenges, it's not the Jewish way. At the same time, as I said, we have to do whatever it takes, but we have to also teach our children that we're courageous while being careful and that we are bearers of light. This is the essential message. I don't have a quick-term solution what to do right now. When you see something like this, our heart bleeds, our heart goes out, we're furious. But the question is how to translate that fury into action. That's above all the most important thing of all. So it's good to see Jews getting together in, a uni- in unity, in solidarity, putting the right pressure on. But at the same time, what we tell our children is, these things happen in a hostile, dark world, but we are bearers of light. Tonight we light eight candles, eight flames, the maximum possible. And what does light do? Light automatically dispels darkness. It's an attitude that always keeps you above the fray while having to deal with the fray. So from a Chassidus applied approach, that's the approach to take, especially when we're talking about Hanukkah, when all this is taking place. Again, God should bless us that this should be the last we should never hear about anything like this again because it never happens again. And meanwhile, do what we have to do on, on all levels, both on the immediate level, on the long-term level, fighting the dark, and above all, illuminating with light and being symbols and bearers of the highest values ever that we human beings have come to this world to bring light to the world. Not darkness, and even not fighting darkness. You bring light, then automatically darkness will be dispelled. Now, I know some people say that's naive, and we have to bear arms. Perhaps. I'm not denying or suggesting that, but I'm coming from a perspective which is a very focused one in this program, and that is the psychological, emotional Torah, Hasidic approach to challenges. So that I'm addressing primarily that without negating any other elements and every, every organization or every group, every community, every city has its ways. And we have to use everything possible just like Yaakov prayed when he met Esau and he prepared for war and he prepared to appease him. You have to attack from all angles. So with that, let's go right into Hanukkah since we're talking about Hanukkah. And of course, this is Zeus Hanukkah. So what, why is it called Zeus Hanukkah? Can you explain why the eighth day of Hanukkah is called Zeus Hanukkah? So the Mabashtas, the most obvious reason, is based on the Torah reading of this day. Tomorrow we will read Zeus Hanukkah Samizbeach. The readings of the Torah correspond to the, the and Hanukkah to the readings of the the tribes, the heads of the tribes as they brought their offerings when they were dedicating the temple. And since there were eight days of dedication, so the eight days, Zeus Chanukah Samizbeach is considered to be the final day and Zeus Chanukah Samizbeach, Zeus Chanukah, Chanukah is based on the word Chanukah as in rededicating the temple. So that's why it's called Zeus Chanukah. However, it still begs the question. The very powerful Sicha in volume 25, Lukute Sichas, Zeis Chanukah, the Rebbe asked the question, Zeis Chanukah literally in Yiddish means, Dos is Chanukah, or Dos is Chanukah. This is Chanukah, that's what Zeis Chanukah means. Which, what do you mean? There are seven days of Chanukah that are also part of Chanukah. So what do you mean, this is Chanukah? 
as if the other days were not? The Rebbe negates the answer that you can say, this doesn't mean dos is Hanukkah. Dos is the complete Hanukkah. But that's not the word, the actual meaning of the word zeis Hanukkah. I mean, you're being very precise. Zeis Hanukkah means this is Hanukkah. So to sum up the beautiful explanation given there, the eloquent explanation, he explains that in general there's two ways to define the power of something. One is its potential, and one is its actualization. And indeed, the Chanukah you talk, have a disagreement between Beishamah and Beishilel, how you light the menorah, the Chanukah menorah. Beishamah said you light going eight candles the first night, eight flames the first night, it's going down seven, Six, five, till the last day, so that's Hanukkah, would be one. Because he goes, Basar Koyach, which means the potential. Since now, we know the potential is going to burn for eight days. So right away, you go by potential, and you actually light the candles that way. Basilel, and the Haloch is Basil. That's why Hanukkah is, the Rosh Hatev is the acronym. Ches Neris, eight flames, Bahalochik Basilel. It's an acronym. That Haloch is like Basil that says the opposite. You begin, you go by Poyol. Begin. One is the first day of the miracle, so you write one day. And each day you, you add, increase, until you get to Mylan Bekadish, you grow in holiness and all matters of sanctity to the eighth day. So what does it mean in, the, in concept? What is the real disagreement? The question is, what, is more, what do you follow? Do you follow potential or do you follow actual? And just for example, when you educate children, whether in school or at home, you always want to tell them, that they have great potential. And you want to believe in their potential. And we're going to help you actualize your potential. At the same time, you don't want anyone thinking, I'll just stay stuck by my potential. Since I have the potential, I don't have to do it. We need to actualize. And my it has to come down in action. So both are, are, nice, are, are necessary. But Hanukkah, the halacha, is actualization. And the Rebbe explains there at length why Hanukkah is that way, because Hanukkah represents the work done from below. They had to deal with the darkness of the Greeks who wanted to assimilate the Jews and who wanted to eliminate the holiness and the light. So it's a fight from darkness. So there you have to go by actual. It's not about potential. It's coming from, as the Rebbe puts it there, the Makabal, the recipient. And the, from the recipient's point of view, the most important thing is actualization. And therefore, when we get to the eighth day of Hanukkah, what do you have? The ultimate actualization. You say, Zeus Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah. This is the total actualization of the entire Hanukkah. Even though we read Zoyz Hanukkah also on the first day, but that's still when it's in a potential state. Now is the actualization, which of course teaches us a tremendous lesson. The lesson of Hanukkah is that, yes, there's great potential in the olive, in the oil, to burn, to burn eight days. Yet the most important thing of all is that that, that potential comes into actualization. So in context of any darkness we're experiencing in life, including these frightful attacks I mentioned before, it's not about just potentially we can overcome it all. No, we actualize it in true light, and we light eight candles the last day, and you could say, Zeus Hanukkah, this is Hanukkah. So Hanukkah is a form of actualization. The last day of Hanukkah is actualizing the entire potential and the entire power and potency of all days of the Hanukkah. Which, of course is the most important, potent force to be able to overcome any challenge. There's yet another or more explanations in the words Zeis Hanukkah, one according to Chassidus, which we'll talk about in the Chassidus question at the end of this program. We always conclude before the essays with the Chassidus question. 
So the lesson to us is very clear. It's not just potential light that we have within us, but it's, we have the power, the actualization of that light. Hanukkah gives us the power to bring it into action. And that's what happened. The few conquered the many, and then they were able to cleanse and rededicate and resanctify the temple and light the menorah, actually light the menorah. And light shined and dispelled the darkness. And as the Ramban says, even after the Beis Hamidosh was destroyed, even after the temple was destroyed, these flames, they will never be destroyed. They will never be extinguished. And they've gone, traveled with us through thousands of years of the darkest moments. And Jews, even in the harshest and direst of circumstances, always made that effort to light the flame. You have these amazing stories, even in the concentration camps, where they tried to get a little machine oil and a potato peel or whatever it may be just to be able to be Yetzir. And it wasn't just an act of commitment. It was an understanding that we, no matter what happens to us, we always hold on to that attempt to shine light and to illuminate with light, even in the darkest of darkest of times. Now, I spoke about this topic in Zeus Hanukkah in previous episodes, 94 and 193. And um, obviously, there's always more to say but this is a program that we have to move forward because there's a lot of other topics to talk about. Since we're talking about Zeis Hanukkah, here comes the next question. Is the Gemar Hadin from Rosh Hashanah on Zeis Hanukkah? Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. My question for you today is as follows. I heard from an older chassid that the Gemar Hadin from Rosh Hashanah is on Zeis Hanukkah. This seems strange, but not understood because what I understood, stand from the Sichas, is the Rosh Hashanah is the Ksiva, which means the inscribing in the Book of Life. Yom Kippur's the Chsime is the sealing in the Book of Life. Then we have another chance on Hashanah Rabbah. Then comes Simchas Teirah. And the remainder of Chedesh Tishrei, and then finally the seventh of Cheshvan, when the Tishrei season ends. So my question basically is, what is the connection of Zeis Hanukkah to the Gemar Hadin, to the conclusion of judgment of the High Holidays? Are you familiar with this concept, Rab Simon? If yes, please explain this concept and what's the source for it. Thanks and Hatzlach Rabba. Okay, very good question. Um, it's not, I've not seen it cited in the books of Chassidus, Chabad, but it is brought in different Chassidus. For example, the Shari Yisachar from Ramin Chassaloza, the Mugat Rebbe. He has a whole section on it and I'll give you the source in Memore in Shari Yisachar. Mamori Chedesh Kislev, Maimur Yimei Eira, section 4 and section 36, and more. And there he cites a bunch of sources from previous Chesidosh Farim, from his own ancestors, different Chesidosh Farim that talk about this Yemadin, explaining it many different ways. I will say, in Tovshin Lamet Ches, after the Rebbe's heart attack on the night of Shemini Atzeres, so the Rebbe did not fabreng then till after the Yomtev, so the usual fabreng that would happen on Shemini Atzeres night, which means the night before Simch, the night of Simch, Eve of Simchus the Rebbe did not make that fabrenga. So Zeis Hanukkah, the Rebbe washed, and it was very clear that he was filling the so-called the missing fabrenga of Shemini Atzeres that year. And there he said that Hanukkah, eight days of Hanukkah, corresponds to eight days of Sukkot, which of course is also brought in Svarim, different sources for it, and thus Shemini Atzeres corresponds to Shmini, the eighth day of Hanukkah. And, 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 that, and obviously he was fulfilling up what was missing then. He did Kesha and he did all the things that he would have done usually on Shemini Atzeres. 
There's also a custom, some say, to pay up for the lulav and esrog of sukkahs, not later than Hanukkah. So clearly there's a connection. So it's an interesting question because, look, when you really think about it, you could say, uh, is it Yerosh Hashanah? Is it Yom Kippur? Is it Yishayin Rabbe? Is it Sim Shemini Atzeres? Or is it Hanukkah? And truth is, it teaches us a tremendous lesson in general in forgiveness and in judgment. That there's never too late. Obviously, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is the most powerful days of the year. We have the power where it's actually inscribed and actually sealed. But there's always a door that remains open. Different expressions is a Shaina Rabba, the messengers begin to take the sealed decrees and start sending them out. And then it says in the Kutta de Burim that Shabbos Bereshis are actually sent out. But they're still sent out. They have not necessarily received, reached their destination. So Hanukkah, as some explain it, is the time when they reach their destination. So those, during these few months, you still have a chance. And Hanukkah is another opportunity to fill in anything we may have missed. Now, this is not meant to become like cute and say, okay, so at the end of the day, come on. I mean, is it Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, or Sukkot? Obviously, we have to take each of those days seriously. But Hanukkah comes as a holiday. It's a holiday of light. It's a holiday of light that deals with darkness. You don't have that in Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Those are light, those are days of joy and days of light, only light. They give power to deal with darkness. But Hanukkah is a holiday that grew out of darkness. And therefore, when something comes out of darkness, it has a light, like I mentioned from the Ramban, that is impen- in, 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 uh, inextinguishable, invulnerable. You cannot destroy it ever. So Hanukkah has that ability to conclude and deal with any of the judgments that with Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, there's a certain end conclusion that comes here. This does not negate the earlier stages of conclusion because in general, you have throughout Yiddishkeit and Torah, you'll find very often this idea. You have Pesach, then you have Pesach Sheni. Just as an example. Now Hanukkah, of course, has its own particular personality. And if you look at Shai Yisachar, he has a whole bunch of other explanations. Many of them are Kabbalistic, some cryptic. So I'm not going to repeat all that says there. I gave you the Maramukim if you're interested in looking further into it. And there are others that also speak about this topic. I have not, again, I've not found it in the Rebbe's talks or in Chassidus, the Maimorim. If anybody has more sources, I'd be happy to um, please share them with me and I'll share them with, uh, the, with the public. Okay. Next question. I want to give one more example before we go. Purim, like Hanukkah, Purim is an example with Matan Teirah. The Gemara says, By Matan Teirah, as great as the revelation was, in a way it was like compelling the Jewish people. So they could always have a complaint. They say, God forced us. God compelled us to receive the Torah. So you comes Purim, and Purim says, Now it was really ratified. What was ratified? That was they received then because now it came through their effort and initiative. So you have a similar example, Purim to Matan Teda. So Hanukkah, you can perhaps compare that. I've not seen that anywhere, but I'm just suggesting it. You can compare Hanukkah to, this, to the days of Yom Naroim, meaning Tishrei, Roshon, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, Shemini Atzeres, that in a way Hanukkah is coming from below. There you have the power coming from above because it's Giluyim, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot are all days that were given to us from above. Though, yes, Yom Kippur did come through Salach, the Kidvarech of Moshe, but still, it's a Gili of Yechideh and all kinds of powers like that. Hanukkah was born, as I said, through the Messiah Snefesh of Eden, 
for Kedusha, for holiness, for sanctity, for Chochmah, as Chassidus explains the meaning of the pure olive oil, the cruise of oil, that par spark, and with that they rebuilt. So in a sense it has a certain element that does not, that's not there in Tishrei, and perhaps that adds to the reason that it's the end of the judgment, it adds that dimension to it. Okay. With that, next question, which is another Hanukkah question. Um, the Rebbe, well, it should be the Rebbe Rayas, the Friedrich Rebbe said that we should listen to what the candles are saying. What do the candles say? So the exact expression is the Friedrich Rebbe said, You have to listen to what the Lichtelech, it's a very endearing way of saying the flames, what they tell us. You look at this picture, the last picture of the Friedrich Rebbe in this world was Hanukkah Tovshin Yud, Yud Shvat, which would be a little, a month, more, a little more than a month later, was this Talkus, which is this year, 70 years from then. So in that 70-year-old picture, Friedrich Rebbe, you see him looking after the, lit, the Hanukkah lights were lit, and you could see him looking at it. I always, whenever I saw that picture from my childhood, I always said, you know, here's a perfect example of the Friedrich Rebbe giving us a living example, looking at the flames, clearly listening to the story that they're telling. So, flames tell many stories and um, many lessons. Some we've talked about, the power of light stronger than darkness, automatically and naturally dispelling darkness. The power of growth, every night we grow in the flames. The colors, the different colors and shades of the flames, the red, the blue, the white, the yellowish, all reflect different shades of life, where the whiter parts, the lighter, brighter parts are the brighter times in life, the darker are the darker times in life, but they're all part of a flame. The idea that a flame is always flickering, restless, like the soul, Ner Hashem Nishma The soul is always flickering, is always restless, it's never static. It's always licking the air, growing upward, transcendent, as a soul. The wick grounds it. Yet another lesson. I can go on and on, and each of us can personalize it, but tell stories. They tell the story of our own lives, they tell the story of your soul, they tell the story of your children's souls, and it's something, it's a great opportunity, especially tonight, last night of Hanukkah, to sit down and speak about it. To look at the flames and say, what do we learn from them? And you learn these powerful lessons of a mirror type, a mirror image, how the flames mirror our lives, how we can learn from the flames to deal with every challenge in life, with darkness, with growth, with our transcendent yearnings. So I think that's enough material that I hope all of us can take, all of you can take and develop further. With that, one more Hanukkah question, and that is post-Hanukkah blues. How... It seems like every year after Hanukkah, the energy goes down a lot. And it can get a bit sad. Is that how it's supposed to be? Or is there a way to continue with the energy from Hanukkah even after? Well, this is a general question about all inspiration. We talk about it very often post-holidays, post-Rosh Hashanah, Kippur, and Sukkot, where an entire month that's saturated with so much energy and so much action. But it's true across the board. It's every Shabbos, and then it comes after Shabbos, we say, Al-Tira Avdi Yankiv. My servant Jacob, do not be afraid because now you're entering back into the mundane routine patterns of life. And of course, the same is true with Hanukkah. And the answer is similar in all cases. 
And then, obviously, each one has their specific power. The answer is that inspiration is powerful. The key is how to maintain it. So one of the ways is exactly that we just said. Listen to the, what the Lichter Lecha are telling you. When you learn those lessons, those lessons last more than eight days. They can last a lifetime. So it's about internalizing and making the extra effort and taking that extra step of not just fulfilling Hanukkah, fulfilling the mitzvahs of Hanukkah, lighting the flames, the other minhagim, the prayers we say, the festivities, the Hanukkah gelt, and the other things we do for Hanukkah, but to internalize it to the point, what does Hanukkah teach me? So today is a perfect day as we begin the last day of Hanukkah. Ask yourself, what did Hanukkah teach you this year? What particular personal lesson? And usually the best is to focus on one specific thing. You get to too big, big picture, you end up not doing anything. God is in the details. And the details, what does Hanukkah teach you? What does Hanukkah teach you? And personalize it with your particular situation in your life now. Think of maybe a moment of darkness you're experiencing in a personal way, physical, emotional, setback, things you'd like to be better. What does the light of Hanukkah teach you about that? We see these events, these, as I said, this horrific attack. What does Hanukkah teach us about that? However, more the more you personalize it, the more you integrate it, internalize it, the more the Hanukkah flames will continue to last. Not just that every Hanukkah we light them, but the entire year, the lesson will be learned. And that's true with all the holidays. That's the whole point, when you, especially when you learn Chassidus. You're not just learning about what mitzvah to do. Today's the mitzvah. Tonight, that's the last night. We're not going to light more Hanukkah flames this year until next year. Based on Migdash, Mashiach comes, we'll light, obviously, the, the Mineta before that. But that doesn't mean that the Hanukkah power does not remain. That's up to us. If you think it's just going to come automatic, no, that's not how it works. We're given the power. We're given the mitzvah. So in a sense, we're given a, a type of head start. We're given the, a shove, a push. It's a power from above that gets us moving, thrusting us forward. But now you have to take that and turn it into something more ongoing, more perpetual. And that takes work. Can't be lazy. And we can't be and procrastinate. We have to take the bull by the horns and say, what can I learn from this? That will last tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And that's how you make Hanukkah forever. Okay. Let's now move to the other special day of this week. It's Hay Tevis. Now, Hay Tevis, of course, is a day that is, uh, is a contrast to Hanukkah, which is thousands of years old. Hay Tevis is literally began Tovshin Mem Zayin. So we're now 33 years from the time when another miracle took place. The Rebbe calls it a Esrotzen, a James Gula, a special day, an opportune day. So it was based on a court case that was resolved on Hay Tavis that year, 1986 it probably was, the beginning of 87, probably 1986. Hay Tavis, because the Hebrew year had changed already to Tav Shemem Zayim, but the English year could have been at the end of December, I believe. So that year was a verdict after a, a length, a relatively long case around the books of the library of Agudis Chassidich Chabad. This is the central library built up by the Rabbeim, the Rebbe Rashab, and by the Rebbe's before him. And Friedrich Rebbe was the one that collected it all together. And when coming to America, 
it was established a library that continued to accumulate books of all sorts. And of course, its cornerstone, its crown jewel, are the books and the writings of the Rebbeim themselves. And the debate and the, the argument was, the case, the court case was, whether these books are privately owned by the Rebbe and therefore subject to inheritance of, by his children and grandchildren, or grandchild namely, or not. And the case was brought because one grandchild who decided that these books are his inheritance felt that he can go and sell some of the books. And that was brought to court to establish that this is not inheritance of any heir. This is, belongs to the Rebbe as it belongs to Chassidim. And that was the verdict. So when asked the question, someone asked the question, why was Hei such a big deal? Weren't all the books already printed? Why did it matter if Chabad had the originals? It seems as if Chabad won the right to keep important, rare, and expensive books, which is nice. But why did the Rebbe feel that that was so important to Chabad as a movement? It seems inconsistent with the Rebbe's general approach to expensive items. Another put it, person put it, what exactly are we celebrating on Hetevus? So again, I will talk about it, but I want to tell you again, invite you again to Wednesday night, the program, an evening of, for the books, which I will be discussing this in a very specific way. And I invite you again, and I want to announce as well, which I neglected to mention before, that the doors will open at the Jewish Children's Museum at 8 p.m. First come, serve, first serve. There is limited space. So I'm giving you a heads up about it. Evening for the books, and I will be talking about that. But I will give a little preview here. And that is that the story here is not about whether you can make copies of the books. It's not about just the content of the books. A book is not just a book. A Sefer Teda is not just a Sefer Teda. It embodies and personifies the one that wrote it. In the case of a Sefer Teda and a Teda, it's Hashem Himself, God Himself. I have inscribed myself, my soul, in these words. And the same thing is with tzaddikim and authors, that they inscribe their souls in their words. And it's the actual book. Yes, it's that manuscript. It's that book. The book they held, the book they wrote, the book that they learned in and studied in. So it's not about the value. No one's selling this library. The library belongs to the collective group of all chassidim. That was the whole psak. So it's not someone winning over someone else. The question is, is it a private domain or is this a public domain? Public meaning that it belongs to Chassidim because this is Teda. And Teda does not belong to any individual. Moshe Rabbeinu also had children and grandchildren. And they did not inherit the Teda. Teda Tzivolano Moshe Merashe Kehilis Yaakov. Kehilis Yaakov, the whole community of Jacob, the whole community of Israel inherited it. So this isn't a small matter. This is a matter of is the Torah living on, or is it just something that can be owned by an individual and do whatever they want with it, sell it? It teaches you also the value. That some things are beyond personal gain. Some things are beyond personal ownership. And as the Rebetzin Chaim Mushka said in her deposition, she said, when they asked her, who do the books belong to? The, the Rebbe of the Chassidim, she said, they belong, the Rebbe himself belonged to Chassidim. And that was a major factor in Judge Sifton's ruling. The Rebbe himself belonged to Chassidim. So this is Hei celebrating what is a Rebbe, what is a Sefer, and what is the relationship of a Rebbe to Sfarim. Okay. Now I did speak about Hei as well in episodes 49, 94, 
144, 145, 193, and 239. I know it's a little um, tedious to give you these, these uh, episodes, but I say it for just completing the picture. Those of you that are listening by podcast and, uh, and, uh, and, and through iTunes or other uh, downloadable uh, uh, platforms, I apologize. But just for the complete picture, should you want to read or listen to more, you can always go into those episodes. So following up the question I just asked, here is a follow-up. So I'll write this question, which is an interesting question. I never thought of it, actually. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, first of all, thank you so much for all your effort you put into the weekly episodes. Approaching Hey Tavis, we all know that it was all about the fact that a Rebbe isn't a ish prati, which means he isn't a private citizen, which is why no one can inherit the library meaning his family cannot be a Yerush, inherit the library. If so, why is the library close to the public? Why were all the Rabbeim so passionate about this forum if it's not their private library? Another way someone wrote it, if Hey Tavis established that this forum belonged to the Chassidim, why is the library not open to the Chassidim and to the public? Very good question. So firstly, when the Rebbe spoke about this back 33 years ago, 34 years ago, during that whole court case period, the Rebbe said that the Friedrich Rebbe established the rules for the library that it is open to the public. Which public? He specifically made it a research library. That anyone doing research, whether a Torah research or other research, and needs access to books that are there, it's open to them. And till, till this day, people who have or researchers can go to the library. Why he made it that way is a good question. Why didn't he make it for the public? Meaning for every person like a public library. It, it's an interesting question that could be discussed. But the library was never meant to be someone's private domain that's just sitting there locked like in a museum. God forbid. These are living books. As a matter of fact, many books that are published, new manuscripts that come in and so on, and things that are, or manuscripts that have never been published, are all coming from this library. So it's a living library. And it's benefiting the public. And the public has access in that way. Now, whether you should have access to the actual manuscripts and the, personal, the books and be able to touch them or be able to see them, since there were guidelines written, for whatever reason it is, maybe because of the, the, to protect the books, some of them are very ancient manuscripts that are very, you have to be carefully handled, or other reasons. But I believe anyone that really wants an access, there's a, there's a catalog, you can access it online, and you can talk to the librarians, the chief librarian and his assistants, and I believe you can have access to something that, that's in the library if you need, need to have access to it. It's not a loan library, meaning you can take a books on loan, but access to the books or copies of the books uh, or more information that's necessary, I believe, is accessible to everyone. So at the end of the day, this library is not a private library. The, the reason that Rabbeim fought for it was not because they fought for their ownership. The whole Rebbe, why did he fight for Judaism altogether? Why did the Rabbeim fight to preserve Jews and to do everything important for the welfare and upkeep of the welfare of Jewish peoples because they were dedicated. That was their whole position in life. Completely dedicated to be a shepherd for the flock. Complete bitl, like starting from Moshe Rabbeinu, their job is to be selfless, transparent leaders. That's not about them. It's not about personal gain. It's not about money. It's not about ownership. So the library is an extension of that. The Torah and the collection of all the Svarim, which continue on and become the way the Rabbeim live on because it's the books that they wrote and the books that they studied that we have, that we can live with and follow its, guide, its guidelines and live up to the expectations that they have of us. Okay. 
Let's now move to the next subject. Next subject is this. Being that it's also New Year's this week, on, uh, uh, what day is New Year's? New Year's is Wednesday, right? Is it Thursday? Thursday is New Year's. So being that it's New Year's, I want to also address a question which I've been coming before, but you know what? It's a short question, let's do it. Is it okay to give any relevance Actually, Wednesday. Wednesday is New Year. Sorry, I said Thursday. Is it okay to give any relevance to the secular New Year? Does Judaism give it any value at all? Like the concept of Rosh Hashanah, Lemelochim. So there's a Rosh Hashanah, not just Rosh Hashanah at the beginning of the year, but Rosh Hashanah, Lemelochim, when they're appointed kings, appointments have a Rosh Hashanah as well. Or do we completely ignore it from a religious perspective? So I've answered this question in, a, in previous uh, pre-New Year Episodes 144, 195, and 196. But essentially, we have from the Rebbe himself, on, on occasions, has wished other people Happy New Year and explained that it is alluded to in the verse in Psalms, in Tehillim, that pay Zion Vov. Hashem Yisper Bechsev Amim. Hashem counts Bechsev Amim by the, by, the, by, the by the laws of the nations. Um, I believe that Rabbi Levitzik Baditchever actually quoted this verse as well, and he wished non-Jews a happy new year. And you have other stories from Tzadikim and others that did use this opportunity to wish others a happy new year. Because in that sense, it's a secular day that's celebrated not in any particular religious manner. It's a secular day, which is the fiscal new year, has other elements of the new year. It's considered new in any in ways in negotiations and contracts and so on and so forth. So therefore, the answer is yes. Hashgacha Pratis is that the large part of the world considers this New Year. So therefore, we also respect that. Obviously, not compared to Rosh Hashanah, that is the beginning beginning of creation, because that's not what it is at all. But it has that type of value. And um, uh, like anything, like Rishus, anything that have, that's a neutral nature, you can always use it for Gedusha, for holiness, and use it L'Shem Shemayim. So if someone can use it in a good way, either doing a good activity, we'll be doing the event Wednesday night, which is New Year's night, not the night after New Year, because it's also a good night. People are off from work usually. So if you use it as for those opportunities, for learning, for teaching, for spreading Yiddishkeit, spreading Chassidus, absolutely. Okay. Next question. Completely another question. It just happened to come in, and I thought it's appropriate. Well, all the questions are appropriate, I should say, but for some reason I felt this one is appropriate because of different issues. And the question is, here we are. After the Hashmanoim took power, they purportedly became corrupt. Yeah, that's what some say, yes. Why doesn't Judaism have a mechanism to get rid of bad people in power? Corrupt leaders, such as elections, impeachment, checks and balances, etc. We know that many malachim, many kings, this is the kings in Israel, became corrupt as well. Why isn't there some way to remove corrupt officials in the Torah? So let's separate this into two different levels. First of all, there's absolutely mechanisms. 
The Teda itself and Teda Shepiksav itself, that if any Novi, any prophet, could be the greatest prophet, could be Moshe Rabbeinu, Chaz V'Sholem, Chaz V'Sholem, God forbid, changes something that God said, then they disqualify themselves. It's called a Novi Sheker. It's a false prophet. Even though he may have been saying all till now he was a Yerushalayim and so on. So there are absolute guidelines where the Torah says what creates disqualification. The question is, and, and how you implement that. No one's above the law. There's only one God. So there's absolutely ways. They're not necessarily the ways that are done today in, in modern secular governments, but there are ways. There's a Bezdin, there's a Sanhedrin. In, Hal- in Halacha, it talks about the ways what you deal with when there's somebody that's on that level. Now, that's in general speaking about different leaders. When it came to a melech, a melech is more complicated because a melech has absolute authority and they wielded it. But even there, number one, we know that God, there's misibidei shamayim, it's called, or that's a punishment that comes from shamayim, that God is watching and he will ultimately order, organize things, especially when it comes to a melech, a king. But even with kings, very often they maintain power, not because they had that power, because they, were, had the, they had the armies and they had the corruption to help them maintain the power. And there are ways as well that a business and Hedron can even challenge a king when you look in halacha. Now we're talking now back in biblical times and back in the Tanakh times. Today, we don't have a melech. Today, leaders, whether it's Rabbonim, Rosh Yeshiva, Gaboyim, or other types of leaders in the community, are in many cases elected, and they have to be accepted by the call. If the call is not Noach Lekol, if a leader is not accepted, it falls out of favor for whatever reason, there are instruments how to deal with that. Now you have to also make sure that you don't have corrupt people corrupting this as well. Because you could say you could always come with complaints about somebody and say, hey, let's overthrow the person. So halacha deals with that too. What are the conditions? It has to be done right. It has to be done ethically. It has to be done honestly and objectively. Because very often what you find is people who don't like people for their own reason want to be in power themselves or they want someone that they are friendly with that's in power. So it's not corruption replacing corruption in that case. Bottom line is there's accountability and in a tailored environment there's ways, there's recourse for everything. And I know some people will say this is naive, not realistic, because the fact of the matter is what do you do if the Rav himself in the community is, you feel is not living up to the standards and that people support him for their own reasons, people are against. So I'm not suggesting it's perfect, but the imperfection is on our part. That we either don't have the Yiddish Shemayim and the proper respect of Teda. So everybody's jockeying for position. But it's not the Teda that's the problem. The Teda gives all kinds of methods. God implanted everything, understood and anticipated that people would be, potentially can be corrupted, can be sheikhed, which is bribery and bias. And they have to recuse themselves. And if they don't, there are, there's recourse. Now, I understand that it's a flawed reality on our end. We don't live in a perfect world, and that is very painful. But at the same time, we can't completely ignore, not completely, we can't ignore the Tater standards. So we have to do the best we can, and hopefully we can find people. Maybe, a major, maybe it's a minority, maybe it's a silent majority that will really abide by Tater guidelines and not look to gain 
from a particular situation because they think they're the ones in power and they should be the ones in power. So we always hope that we find people who can have that type of purity of heart, objectivity, people who consult with others and don't just do things they don't just do things of their own volition because you never know, people can have good intentions and sometimes do things that are not correct. They may have good, the objectives may be good, but the methods may not be always sound. And there are ways for all of this. The Taylor gives us ways. Consult with somebody. Consult with the Yerushalayim. And when there's a real trouble, I would suggest that people come together, a few, a few balanced minds, a few um, uh, calm heads, that come together, discuss it, look at the options, and make sure that there's no agendas, because agendas will always never undermine, undermine the whole situation. Because what are you replacing? You're replacing one agenda with another agenda. Much more can be said on this. It's a painful topic. It's not, I don't have an ear, I don't have a uh, magic pill or an airtight solution. I, I do believe, however, that there are enough sincere people and good people that can rise to the occasion and look at things in a balanced way and not allow themselves to be cowed or intimidated by any voice, look at it from a terrible way, come to certain consensus, and try to implement it. Now, I would love to hear your feedback on this, thoughts and comments. I'm trying to approach it in a very balanced, tailor way, a way that the Rebbe would have approached it. There's a tailor, there's halacha. That's what tailor came here for. It's dealing with a world that is full of sheker, full of lies, full of hostility, full of deception, duplicity. The tailor came how to teach us, be a tailor aid, a guiding light, how to navigate the minefields of conflict of different opinions, Reuven and Shimon, all the tainas. This one says this and this one disagrees. How do you find clarity? How do you find truth in an untruthful world? How do you find the best possible approach? And that is what we hold on to. And frankly, we have nothing else to hold on to. Because if you don't have a tailor than that, then we're completely subject and become completely victims of circumstances and of whims of individuals who may be very good people, but they could also change. And then there's other people who may have different intentions. So Teira is what we hold on to. That is we are Teira Eden, Shulchan Aruch Eden, that based it on what it says, what was expected of us, and not based on our interpretation of what was said. And of course, egos come into play, insecurities come into play, a lot of psychological factors come into play whenever these things happen. That's why you have to be wise, very wise, and how to deal with situations and conflicts like this, to be able to come away with a good, good resolution. And never forget the lesson of Hanukkah, that light dispels darkness. The real way is light. Eir. Eir. Eir dispels darkness. That again does not mean that sometimes we have to get down on our hands and knees, and sometimes we have to get into the grime and into the dirt, to do certain things, but that's only out of necessity and, the, and last resort, and only as a minimal, only in the minimal possible way, and immediately get back into a world of light. Anon Paula Yemama Anan. We are day workers. We're here to bring light into the world. Okay, I'm going to do a follow up or two. Um, we talked about public menorahs last week, so here's some follow up to that. Public menorahs, episode 288 last week. 
from opposition to having a menorah in our building. We are a Chabad family living on a bustling street. This year I tried putting up a menorah in my building. At least 25,000 people of walking traffic will see the menorah. We have opposition from one from neighbors saying that if we let, we let that happen, then the Goyim will want to put up a Vedazara for their holiday. How, one, how do I answer such a question in a way that will impact them, the people who oppose? And two, is it worth to argue about it if the from Yidin feel uncomfortable and might lead to a lack of Avis Yisrael? Okay. So first of all, let's address question number one. Question number one, the Rebbe addressed directly, especially in context of prayer in schools as well. And uh, that prayer in schools, in public schools, will lead the people, some people to say a prayer that's a Vedazara from the point of view of Torah. And yet, having faith in this world is better than no faith at all. And the Rebbe quotes, the Rebbe quotes the Baal Shem Tov, who preferred a religious Christian than a, than a person who was an atheist. Especially according to the fact that by them it may not be Havei Zara, many days opinions it's not. Maisav Hasein Biyodeim, as Ramah writes, meaning it's just custom and just... Uh, just a just a meaning meaning just custom for them, not a religious statement. Secondly, the menorah represents spiritual light, divine light. How could that be a bad thing? We live in a world with so many symbols out there, especially in the streets, in public areas, of negative. So I would try to explain to them in a peaceful, beautiful way. There's so much darkness out there. Adding a light can only help dispel darkness. And you think that's why the, the, the neighbors that are not Jewish are going to want to put up their thing. They put it up anyway. Look, the whole country is adorned during this season. They didn't have to wait for the menorah. So we're trying to bring some Jewish light into the picture. I would say it's universal light, but coming from Jewish sources. And I would do this in a peaceful, calm way. Now some people will respond, and some people won't respond well. To say that it's obvious Israel not to do it, you could also argue maybe it's obvious to Israel that they should, they should um, uh, compromise and allow it to be done. I have not seen, and uh, of course, if it's direct machlekes, where you have to get into a major war, is one thing. But I've seen from the Rebbe that if you do it positively, you usually can prevail. So I'm not sure what would be a situation if it's definitely going to cause machlekes. But I believe that, remember, machlekes takes two to tango. The other person has to be really opposed. So what happens if they don't like that you are doing other things? Let's say not the Hanukkah menorah in the public. Let's say other, you walk outside with your talis on. Or you wear a beard and a yarmulke. And someone says, you know, you're embarrassing us. Jews. So what does that mean? Because of the, they say that they're gonna be, it's going to be machlekas, an argument. That's why you have to stop that. So I would say always look for the peaceful way. If it's absolutely only, can lead only machlekas, that needs to be looked at. I'm trying to recall, I think there's something on answer from the Rebbe, I'll try to find it, but beyond that, that's the approach I would take. As far as another question, Hanukkah public lightings, I listened to your Shir 288. One of the questions asked was regarding public lighting of menorah, and you said that there's the reason of Pesumenissa, publicizing the miracle. Since when do we decide how to, how to do, since when do we decide how to do Pesumenissa? We. Chazal were misakin the how and when. Our sages designate how and when. Maybe have a skywriter write Happy Hanukkah, it surely would be Pesumenissa. 
Driving around the city with an electric menorah on top of your car, that too is Pesuminissa. Is that too Pesuminissa? Why don't you institute a matzah ball hunt in the White House garden to emulate the goyim during Easter Passover holiday? Once you start to write your own halachas and Newman Hogim, who knows what you may come up with next, blowing shave from the New York City Council during Elul, stick to the mitzvahs in the Shulchan Harav, and you won't go wrong. Okay, well, you're entitled to your question, and I, that's why I read it. But number one is we have a Rebbe. And a Rebbe is a Isha Teira and Isha Aloha. And you know Shulchan Aruch better than I and better than you. And he instituted public menorahs. It's not some guy that came up with it. A Chazal B'derenu, yes. And a leader. Now you say you, want, you, don't want, you don't want to follow him or you don't accept him, that's your business. But there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands that do. And that's who they answer to. And if he did something, even we don't have explanation, it knows it's definitely based on Allah and Shulchan Aruch and, and, uh, and all Chalki Ater, all sections of Ater, including Primus Ater. Also, a person who takes the pulse of our generation and understands what's needed. That in the age of assimilation, up to 80-90%, a public community can remind one Jew of their Jewishness, of God, of a mitzvah. Then maybe, what did you think about that? That did not exist back in the time of Chazal, that issue. Jews are embarrassed of their Judaism. If this can help a little relieve that shame. We're not dealing in a situation where we're living with non-Jews threatening us. Definitely not the Menorahs causing it. On the contrary, the Menorah is a symbol of freedom and therefore public Menorahs were upheld in the court, courts of secular courts of law in America. And it could even be an awakening to them to bring light into the world. As we see now, thousands, tens of thousands of public menorahs being lit. Tell me what the results are. Measure the results. So now as you'll say, okay, so do the ends justify the means? Just because the results are good. Well, that's why I went back to Tereb. Where's there an issue to put up a public menorah? It's not creating new mitzvahs. It's not creating new minhagim. I was saying that especially today, where most poskim say we light, light at home. And at home itself, not even in the window. At the door that there's a persumanissa, which we do in shul, and can also be applied to a lighting manure in the public, because that's what it does. Now, whether it's halachic persumanissa, whether they make a bracha, obviously dependent on the flames and what and when, and who should make the bracha, that's details. But the concept, look what's, look what's going on, is creating a kiddush Hashem. And that's what a leader like the Rebbe can do, and understood it. He knew it before it happened, and that's what he pushed for. And we now can look in retrospect and see that a DACA was accomplished. And yes, case by case, certain things are acceptable, certain things are not to be done, certain things we have to do, we were told to do. And there are areas, yes, there are areas where you can go ahead and bring Yiddishkeit and God, yes, to other people. It doesn't always have to be in manifestation in the form of a mitzvah. But when you go in business and you talk to people about God, is that going outside of the pale? Some people feel it is. You only talk about God in my home and my shul and in my kailo. Look at Avram Avinu. We spread godliness everywhere. Your behavior, Kiddush Hashem, people look at you. That's not a new thing. That's taking responsibility that you are a proactive Jew that's, far, that's proud of being Jewish and proud of bringing light and being a dugmachaya, a living example of what God wants a human being to be on this earth. Okay, one more little short follow-up and then we'll go to the Chassidus question. Rochel passing away after having sons, I spoke about that. 
but there, it was due to the fact that she says, I will die if I don't have children. So I neglected to mention that Rashi, and the Pesach actually says, that when uh, they were leaving Lovan, so the, the, the Getchkes, the idols, were stolen, the Trofim. So Lovan comes to Yaakov and says, bring me back who stole the thing. So he says, whoever stole it shall die, meaning vouching that I did not. So Rashi says that was the reason that Rachel died prematurely. So that requires its own discussion. And seemingly from that, clearly it was not Rachel's own words. It was due to a particular area. Like, why, why should she die? But, you know, had Yaakov known that it was Rachel, would he have said that? So this is another discussion I just wanted to add to the whole equation of the topic. And we'll talk about that another time. Fine. Okay, now the Chassidus question, following up from the beginning of the program, what is Zeis Hanukkah according to Chassidus? So we talked about different aspects of it, Zeis as being Zeis, Begilu, Zeh, Marva, Edzboeva, Emer, Zeh, in the beginning, actualization of potential. And there's a mimer called Baruch Sha'asa Nisim from the Alta Rebbe. Baruch Sha'asa Nisim Lavaseinu, it's a Hanukkah mimer. And it's printed in Eira Teira from the Tzemach Tzedek with the Tzemach Tzedek's editions. It's printed in volume 5 of Bereshis of Eira Teira, page Toftaf Kuf Samach Beis, end of Siv Dalad, section 4, Toftaf Kuf Samach Beis Alav, that was the, that's the equivalent of 962a. And the Rebbe brings this mimer in a few of his talks, a number of places, and, and different notes that he wrote to individuals, and explains it as well. So let me refer to you where the Rebbe brings it, and then I'll read briefly what it says, how the Rebbe explains it. In Shabbos Pashim, Tovshin Yudbeis, going back now all the way back to the early parts of the Nesias, that would be 1951, most likely, and Zeus Hanukkah that would be 1978, end of 78, if Hanukkah was still in December. And there he cites, in very short, the Tzemach Tzedek, and this could be from the Alter Rebbe, he compares the, seven, the eight days of Hanukkah to uh, the eight days of Hanukkah's Shemenes Yimei Amiluyim. That's the eight days of when they dedicated the temple. And explains that what are these eight? That you're bringing down the seven days of Atik. Atik is the highest level in Kesar, the pleasure divine pleasure, that's the core of divine pleasure, the deepest levels of the divine. So there's seven dimensions of that, and you bring them down into Malchus. Malchus means that you reveal them. So in Atik, they're in a superconscious state, and you bring them into a conscious state all the way to Mal, not just Chachma, but to the last of the ten spheres, which is Malchus. And that's the eighth day, because the eight is the seven in one. And he says, that's why it's called Zeis Hanukkah. Zeis Hanukkah Samizbeach. Because Zeis, he Malchus. Zeis was not Loshon Akeva, not Zeh. And Zeis also means Begili. Malchus reveals that which is from higher levels, which is concealed. So that's why it's called Zeis Hanukkah, because it reveals the concealed dimensions of the superconscious Atik. Then the Tzamasada continues and says, Elsewhere it explains, the Rebbe, in the footnotes there, the Rebbe gave out this in a kuntris in those early years, in a separate kuntris with footnotes. So it says elsewhere, lehepach, the opposite. She'in ches yomim, the eight days, 
is not seven higher levels that come into one, it's the other way around. It's a one higher level that comes into seven. Hainu al-derech oz, alev zayin. Shem zayin midis, the seven emotions, hamakablim b'chines alev, that receive from the alev, hu keser eklolus gimel that the Aleph is the higher level. The one is higher, and it's either Keser, not Atik, but Keser includes Atik, or Kolos Gimel Roshenis, which means Keser Chochmabina, the first three heads, the first three spheres. So it's opposite. Before we said it was the seven coming into Malchus into one, revealing it, being revealed. And now it's the one coming into seven. So the Rebbe debates the issue in his own talk whether the second interpretation is an interpretation in general about the seven, the eight days of Meluim, maybe not related to Hanukkah. And the Rebbe is neita, he leans toward that interpretation, that the second interpretation is not about Hanukkah. It's, he's going back to the topic that he spoke about before. That's in the Fabringen of Zeus Hanukkah, Tov Shalom In the Makate Tov Shalom he reconciles the two. He says, because in order to bring it down into Malchus, you need to go to a higher place. So basically it would be, the Aleph of Keser gives the power to the seven Midas to then bring it down into, the, into, into Malchus in a revealed way. So you have eight both ways. You have eight coming from the top down, not only one into seven, and then seven into one. That's what appears as in the case. What is the relevance to us? The relevance to us, as I discussed earlier, as the Rebbe explains, is about revelation. The focus is, if it's one into seven, you could say... Yes, it's becoming going into the Midas, so it is coming down, but you don't have the Gili of Malchus. And what you want to have is that it should really be fully alive. That the light of Hanukkah in the last day shouldn't just be one that remains in higher domains, but one that energizes, imbibes us, and is internalized in the fullest possible way, where the light is shining brightly for all to see and for all to experience. But it's a light that's coming from a much higher level. It's not just a light. There's seven midas of Atik are feeding this light. So on Zeus Hanukkah you have the seven in one. So you have the highest levels coming in the most revealed possible way. So you have the deepest secrets being revealed in the most revealed possible way. Okay, with that we conclude the chassidus. We'll do now the essays. The essays, three essays. First one is living in the perfect moment, living with the Messiah, Yechiel Belfer, age 42, Victoria, Australia, the lawyer. Okay. Living with the Messiah, a popular catchphrase among Hasidic circles quoting the Lubavitcher Rebbe, but what principal standards or morals is this message supposed to impart? Are we yet deserving of the Messianic promised times? If not, how are we expected to or capable of acting as if we are? Or perhaps this phrase is not an instruction, but rather a high-level mission statement, only intended to inspire. I have attempted to explore a concept contained within a discourse presented by the Rebbe to mark the, the, the conclusion of the Shleshim following the passing of his wife, the Rebbetzin, in his response to a prophecy that promises the, eradic- the eradication of death from this world. I found valuable advice on how living in your perfect moment can help even those of us not perfectly righteous, to experience the ideal of living with the Messiah. Beautifully stated, and goes on to actually spell this out, but is it for me? When you learn all these deeper concepts of this is really relevant to a person who we know may not be on the highest level. Even for those beneath the intermediary, meaning beneath the Benini. And he talks about Mocha Hashem, 
meaning God will erase the tears from every face, which means the end of death, and then explains how that can be made relevant to each one of us and how each of us plays a role that we are needed in the unfolding of this drama. The focus on love, and yes, creating your perfect moment in an imperfect life. Your moment with God, where to from here, a glimpse at future times. Really excellent essay. The Maimon he's talking about is Bila Hamovis Lenetzach, which means that, that, um, that death will be swallowed up forever. The Rebbe said that on the 5th of Menachemov, Tovshin Chafei, which was when the Rebbe Sachan, the Rebbe's mother, passed away, but was published in 1988 after the Rebbe Sachai Mushka passed away. Very beautiful essay, and you can find this and the other essays that are posted anew for the first time, I should say, at chsidasupply.com. Um, where you also can find all the previous episodes archived, as well as a forum where you can submit your anonymous, totally anonymous question. Essay number two is in Hebrew. The way to succeed and to uh, train yourself in implementing decisions in, perf- in human perfection, in perfecting yourself. Menachem Mendel Ashkenazi, age 19, Kfar Chabad, a student in Yeshiva's Tem Chetmim Kfar Chabad. So the title tells it all. Uh, then, and the, um, that he addresses exactly that. And uses, I'm looking here, with the Maimara Machsidis, what motivates us to create change in our lives? And why is it so difficult to do so? The power of the status quo. And recognizing that the, since the stakes are so high, how you counter that with forces that recognizing that resistance, what you can do to make sure that you implement. Again, another very good essay and well worth reading. I'm, I'm moved and touched and amazed, frankly, every time I read these essays, how people put so much energy and investment and really interesting, stimulating ideas that often are ones you have not heard before. So I congratulate you for that. And then we'll do the last essay for tonight. Will be Hachsidis Kiklei Ezelimetapel. Hachsidis as an instrument or a tool for a therapist, for therapy, therapist. Tammy Cooperman, 51, Ramat Gan, Israel, Yehud's Bebayis. Okay. So. This one is really a very therapeutic uh, type guidelines taken from Chassidus. She writes that in this, uh, this essay, I, che- I researched how Chassidus offers us tools for, for even for a professional therapist. And I did this by looking at three perspectives. The psychological perspective, the intellectual perspective, a cognitive perspective, and a behavioral perspective. And by, doing, by combining them and using Chassidus, of course, comparing it to CBT and so on, she develops a uh, pretty good blueprint for how we can apply Chassidus into the area of therapy. So this is good both for lay people and, of course, for therapists and professionals. Another well-done job. It's quite extensive and uh, elaborate, which is great in this case. So thank you for that as well. And with that, we conclude the essays. 
And we are um, celebrating Zeus Hanukkah, as I said at the outset. I want to again announce the Hey Tavis event this Wednesday night, eight doors opening up at 8 p.m. Hey Tavis, and eveningforthebooks.com. It will also be streamed live, but uh, of course, being live and seeing you, and you seeing me and I seeing you, of course, is most powerful of all. So I personally invite you all. May you have a very, very powerful and illuminating Zeus Hanukkah one that illuminates every crevice of our lives, even the darkest corners. May it eliminate and eradicate once and for all all the darkness and hate out there. And may it help us bring peace in our communities, in our homes, in our families, and in the larger world. With the Gula Amitiz Vashlema, that from the Meneda of Hanukkah, we go to read Kindle. The Meneda in the Beis Amidah Shlishi in the Third Temple in Yerushalayim, Bimheda B'yameinu Mamish, soon as possible, as, as uh, even tonight. Freilich and Chanekin.